I lived in Arizona for a while. Most of my 20s and some of my teens, in the suburbs of Phoenix and in Tucson, where I went to school. There's nothing quite like it, the Arizona desert. Massive cities somehow sprung up from the sand. There's a strange way the light acts out there if you drive far enough to where the city dissolves into the desert. Light seems to take on a life of its own if it gets too far outside of civilization. In the thick of the darkness, you can see lights for miles. The light of the city behind you, of power plants in front of you, small towns over the horizon setting the skyline aglow, the stars overhead, the moon if it's time. And for all the light you can see, it seems to avoid you, to bend around you, to leave you and the desert alone with miles of quiet darkness. It gets easy for your mind to wander, to imagine the nightmares that make their homes in the scorched earth. This month on Death, Dying, and Other Things, two stories about light. In the first, natural light, a man's new painting doesn't agree with the candles nearby. In the second, three of them, an industrious individual tells all about his clever business. Death and dying are the thresholds between this world and the next. The boundary between light and dark. The barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We're going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. He brought home the painting as a joke. It's how most things ended up on his walls or shelves. Kitschy paintings and gaudy mugs. Anything that would get guests to say, Oh, that's interesting. Larry Reynolds kept a cluttered house so that there was always some conversation piece to rely on whenever he had guests. Cluttered but clean. That's how he liked to live his life. The painting in question now hung in his living room, just to the left of the stone veneer around the fireplace. The scene set forth in the painting was this. Deep in the forest, a campfire was freshly put out, wisps of smoke still rising. To the right, a man, a hunter, his rifle propped against a nearby stump, with a thin bucket in his hand, presumably the one who had just smothered the fire. Behind the hunter, a green tent. In between each of the trees that surrounded him, in this scene, dark shadow, veiling the rest of the forest. Larry had stepped back and surveyed the painting's new home on his wall. A good place for it, he thought. The next time someone came over, they'd see it and notice it was new and ask him where he'd gotten it, and he'd be able to tell the story. Larry had just finished eating at his favorite restaurant. He liked it, 
not because they had great sushi, which they did, but because it was just on the inside of what he considered to be acceptable walking distance, about four blocks, just under half a mile, any further, and he'd usually like to drive, or ride his bike, but his bike was mostly for show anyway. He liked to take first dates there, and on this occasion he had met a woman. It wasn't going well, and Larry had decided that they would finish the meal and go their separate ways. When they finished the last of the rolls, Larry smiled and said he had a nice time. The woman said that yes, she had had one as well, and they promised to do it again. When Larry left a few minutes after the woman, he took a different way home than he usually did, through a park first, and then an alley, where he saw the painting of the smothered campfire and the hunter and the forest at night, propped up against a trash can. He wasn't above dumpster diving. Some of his best finds were in the trash, but this one wasn't in the trash so much as by the trash, and he was worried someone had just set it down and would be back to retrieve it shortly. Larry wasn't a thief. He did like the painting, though. The technique was just competent enough that he thought it would fit in at a bar or restaurant, but the subject was so banal that he thought it would be more at home in a hotel lobby. Wherever it would best fit in, or wherever it was from, was of secondary concern to Larry at this moment. He waited 15 minutes, and when no one came to claim the painting, Larry picked it up and carried it off to his house. Larry first noticed the strange effect the painting seemed to have on its environment during a small get-together during which he had hoped to show off the newest item in his collection, a large wooden statue of a dodo. The painting, as sad as he was to admit, had not been the hit he had hoped it would be. The dodo statue, on the other hand, was a great success. Nearly each one of his guests remarked on it in turn. How large, how detailed, how strange. It filled him with joy and a little pride that he had found such an unusual piece. He poured drinks and answered questions about the dodo, and he and his guests played charades, but there was one task that Larry kept having to repeat. The leftmost candle, which lived on, of course, a garish candlestick on the mantel above the fireplace, went out four or five times throughout the night, resulting in Larry having to fetch his lighter and relight the thing. When Larry had said goodbye to the last of his guests sometime around 11 and went to the mantel to put out the candles, he found the leftmost candle was, as he expected, out. Larry went about the room, trying to find some window that was slightly open, some gap in the jam around the front door, or maybe a draft coming down the chimney. He found none of these, but, by chance, glanced at the painting hanging just to the left of the fireplace. He saw something that seemed wrong to him, though in the moment he couldn't be sure. The painting that he had found out in the alleyway some weeks before depicted this scene at just past 11 on that night. Deep in the forest, a campfire. To the right, a man, a hunter, his rifle propped against a nearby stump, with a tin bucket in his hand filled with water. Behind the hunter, a green tent, in between each of the trees that surrounded him, dark shadow veiling the rest of the forest. The campfire was dying, and it seemed that the hunter was about to put it out. This was, surely, different than the scene the painting had depicted even earlier in that same day, 
Larry thought, but then he couldn't be sure. Perhaps he had just never studied it as thoroughly as he had thought. He went to bed and had nightmares of a dark forest and a large dodo that would gouge his eyes out with its beak. And the next morning, his suspicion about the painting was confirmed. It had returned to its original composition, a campfire freshly put out by a hunter in a dark forest. Larry's interest was piqued, surely, by this new discovery, but he was unsure how it happened at first. What caused the painting to change, and how did it change back? He ran through the possibilities in his mind. Perhaps this painting was like those other images sold in shopping malls, the ones where the image changes depending on where you stand or how you look at it. A few quick steps around the room disproved that theory rather quickly, though. It could be that someone from the party the previous evening was playing a trick on him, though that seemed far-fetched as he didn't know any painters, especially in the group he had entertained, and he definitely didn't know any painters that also had the skills of a cat burglar to break into his house and change the painting back in the night. He briefly considered that maybe he was just that sauced and imagined the whole thing in a drunken haze. He didn't drink that much wine, though, so he shelved that possibility, too. The only other thing he could remember from the night before... The only other thing that was out of the ordinary was the trouble he had keeping the candle nearest to the painting lit. Larry grabbed a matchbook off the nearby side table and struck one. He lit the leftmost candle on the mantel, watched it dance in front of him for a moment, and then sat on the edge of the couch to monitor what happened. After several minutes of nothing, he got up from the couch, bored, and went to the kitchen, where he brewed some coffee and toasted some bread. When he returned with his breakfast, the candle was out. The campfire in the painting was no longer smothered, but was giving off the last of its dying light. Larry, after several more trials which he missed witnessing, concluded that the candlelight must be what was changing the painting, though he still didn't know how. Maybe the paint was sensitive to heat. Maybe the natural light from the flame, as opposed to the artificial light from the light bulbs, was revealing something hidden. In any case, he resolved to get to the bottom of it. Larry set up an experiment that he would perform later that night. He dug out a video camera and tripod from the hallway closet that he trained on the painting and the candlestick. He set up a viewing area next to the camera, a large, comfortable armchair that he wouldn't be compelled to move from. Once the sun went down, he would turn off all the lights, set the camera to record, light that single candle, and see what happened. He sat in the dark room, the only light the single candle that his camera was recording, for a good ten minutes before he noticed anything. He didn't notice it at first. It was a change that happened over several minutes, and it wasn't until it became more pronounced that his eyes were able to tell. The flame on the candle usually an inch or so long, had grown to, in his estimation, three inches. Not only that, but it had also become thinner. In fact, it seemed to Larry that the flame was stretching rather than growing. Another several minutes and the flame was five inches long and the diameter of a piece of cooked spaghetti. At this point, the flame had stopped dancing as candle flames usually do, and it started curving toward one direction, to the left, toward the painting. 
One more minute and the flame was two feet long and thin as a needle. It reached almost all the way toward the painting, straining to touch the canvas. When it reached three feet and was just about to touch the painting, the flame disappeared, starting at the wick and rapidly moving up the thin flame. Larry was left in complete darkness. He hurried over to the light switch and looked back at the painting. It had changed, of course. The campfire, instead of freshly smothered, was now merely dying, and the hunter was moving on it with a bucket of water. He turned to the camera. Do you believe that? He asked no one. Larry spent the rest of the night recreating the experiment. He put another candle on the edge of the mantle with the first, and both undertook the same strange journey. Three candles worked as well. When he used a fourth, something startling happened. The campfire in the painting grew bigger. Instead of a small dying campfire, a larger campfire made of two fresh logs was at the center of the painting. The hunter was bent over, placing a third log in the fire. The light reached farther into the forest too, illuminating a second ring of trees beyond the first and revealing something strange. Nine sets of eyeballs in the shadows between the trees, reflecting the light from the fire back toward Larry. Larry went to the kitchen to grab a box of birthday candles he had purchased for a birthday party he never had, and lit those in addition to the four, but unfortunately the small birthday candles burned out too quickly. He was too excited at this point to stop. His experimenting had carried him late into the night. It was past 1am at that point, but the disappointment of his latest trial had to be overcome. Out of candles, it took him far too long to think of a larger source of flame he had at the ready, the fireplace itself. He took the painting off the wall, which by this point had reverted to its original composition. Dead campfire, empty water bucket held by hunter, nearby stump, gun, dark forest and put it on the ground a few feet away from the fireplace. He turned on the gas, lit the pilot light, and set the thing to roaring. It took a lot longer this time. Where the candles would take five minutes to begin showing signs of deformation, the larger fire in the fireplace took 15. The flames started licking the stone veneer along the sides of the fireplace in the direction of the painting, leaving dark burn marks. At the 20 minute mark, the flames started straightening out and had begun stretching toward the canvas. On a much larger scale, the flames tore out of the fireplace, curved through the air, and reached out, groping desperately for the art. It was an hour before the painting had consumed the fire from the fireplace in its entirety. Larry rushed forward to turn off the gas and then turned the living room lights on to get a good look at the painting. The wall and carpet between the fireplace and the artwork was singed from the flames, but that was of secondary or even tertiary concern to Larry. He grabbed the painting off the floor and held it up to the light to get a better look at it. Laying his eyes on the painting in its new configuration, it felt to Larry that his stomach was taking a trip up through his abdomen and making a new home, high in his chest. Blood rushed to his head, and he felt very close to vomiting. 
Larry wished he could have taken back the last several hours of experimenting. The campfire on the canvas was now roaring. Five logs fed four-foot flames. The hunter sat on the nearby stump, roasting something on a stick. The nearby tense folds flapped in some unseen breeze. The surrounding forest was alight by this massive fire the hunter had built. And in between the trees, where once shadowy black paint obscured the details, the owners of those nine pairs of eyeballs were now visible in the sharp natural light, watching the hunter with the intensity of a predator stalking its prey, hanging from the nearby trees and crouching out of sight. They were short, shorter than the hunter at least, and slender, more slender than any normal creature of the forest. An oversized head, smooth and bulbous, sat on top of what couldn't rightly be called shoulders. Their large, glassy eyes were set into this awful head like gemstones, gleaming in the light. Their necks were short, and served only to allow the heads to swivel, which they seemed to be able to do near complete 360 degrees, like an owl. Their bodies were stubby and covered in pockmarks and uneven red splotches. And the legs, the legs were the worst part. Too many to count. Protruding every inch along either side of the body, they stretched into all directions like wisps of hair, grasping high branches and standing on the forest floor. What's more, to Larry, they seemed to be moving. Larry put the painting down facing the wall. He didn't want to know what sort of deranged mind could have come up with those creatures. He never wanted to see those things again. He would destroy the painting in the morning, but now he was exhausted and needed sleep. His sleep was not restful. Punctuated by dreams of the forest, of camping, of the forest floor opening up underneath him, of a thousand hands reaching for him in the infinite darkness. He gave up on sleep around four in the morning. Over a cup of tea, he considered whether the experiments with the painting were also a figment of last night's nightmares. Perhaps he had fallen asleep sometime during those experiments, and his creative brain had filled in the rest. He worked up the nerve to do one last trial with a handful of candles. Ten minutes later, he knew he hadn't dreamt it, and the eyes of those horrible creatures were staring out of the dark forest as the hunter built his fire. If Larry had stopped to count the sets of eyes, gleaming out of the shadows between the trees in that painting, before he wrapped the artwork in a trash bag and carried it outside to the dumpster, he would have counted eight. This new information may have given him pause and a fighting chance. But as a matter of fact, Larry did not stop to count the sets of eyes gleaming out of the shadows between the trees in that painting. And so, after he threw that infernal thing in the dumpster and headed back inside, when he locked the door behind him, and when he returned to his dark bedroom and climbed into his bed to try again for a bit more sleep, he had no idea what was waiting for him.
Thank you so much for listening to Death, Dying, and Other Things. After the break, a man tells all about his clever business in three of them. recently came into possession of three large caskets. I can't tell you who I received them from. That's my business, and it's a business I'd prefer to keep secret. I can't tell you what I'm planning to do with the oversized coffins, either, after I'm done with them. My connections are my own, and secrecy is essential in my trade. I'm not willing to risk my livelihood just to fill in a few more blanks for you whomever is listening to this recording right now. Provided I survive the night, I would like to continue with this line of work. It's the only thing I've ever been good at. I've held other jobs, sure. For a few years I sold Bibles door to door, but I was never the most convincing Bible salesman. When you've got vision like mine, it's hard to sell something like that. I tried my hand at manual labor, too, painting homes. Most of that work came from families moving into a house they just bought, and they didn't usually like it when I told them about the things that already lived there. I live in a large house in the country. It makes it easier to do my work outside of the city, undisturbed by the noise. I've converted my whole basement into a sort of, well... I guess you could call it a studio. I don't consider what I do art, but you might. It's more of a craft to me, a finely honed craft. It's taken me the better part of a decade to be as good as I am at what I do. Did you hear that? They're around here somewhere. I've never, in my ten years doing this, been in such a dangerous position. The workspace I've set up down here, in the basement, is ingenious for my purposes, if I could just take a moment to bask in my own ingenuity. I've taken the majority of the 20-foot by 18-foot basement below my house and placed soft and exotic rugs on the floor. These rugs help cushion the hard concrete, a feature that's never been useful to me thus far, but that I understand the use of. On the walls, as well as the stairway, I've hung thick red velvet. The red velvet serves three purposes. First, like the rugs, it covers the hard surfaces of the basement walls with a softer substance. Second, the dark velvet serves to absorb some of the light from antique oil lamps, one of the only sources of light down here. During the process I carry out, it's important the environment doesn't get too bright. The third purpose the red velvet along the wall serves is perhaps the most important. The red velvet, and I don't know if it's the color or the fabric, almost reflects the energy that builds during my process back in on itself, causing it to develop into something more contained and useful to me. I've built an entire workbench out of thick oak, a very suitable wood for my purpose. 
It holds all the handmade and custom tools that I've developed over the years. Long wire combs, short broad knives, bottles of certain substances. There are five four-foot candlesticks placed in a pattern around the room. I won't tell you what pattern, though. That's a trade secret. On the opposite side of the room, there is a lectern holding a certain book that I read from throughout the procedure. Near the lectern is a large electric machine of my own design. The front of it houses several gauges and dials that only I know the meaning of. The side has three long hoses, two of which head down to the floor and mingle with a circle of salt that I've laid nearly around the entire room. The third hose has a handle and an electrical probe that I employ a certain way during my work. And, in the middle of the room, a large marble slab that I had brought in from... somewhere. The caskets sit on the marble slab, as did countless coffins before this unfortunate night. I'm beginning to think I will not make it. I suppose you'd like to know what exactly it is that I do. When I was younger, I discovered that I had a unique gift. Some people with the same gift as I call it clairvoyance. Some call it intuition. I don't find those words useful in describing my gift. Those words suggest the ability to do something with the information you're gathering through your senses. If you're clairvoyant, you can relay the information to those that would have use for that information. If you have intuition, you may be able to avoid something terrible coming to pass. I possess none of those qualities in my gift. I can simply tell if something is there or not. My gift does not allow me to focus and do battle with any of the things I see. But the tools and techniques I've assembled down here do. I receive caskets from my source. They do not tell me where they got them from, nor when. They do not tell me when the work is to be completed by. They do not tell me what they expect of me. That is already arranged. The coffins have been used. They may have been buried at one point, but they have definitely once been the home of a corpse. Once I am done with my work, the caskets are sold to a local funeral parlor, which, as it happens, offers the best prices in town. They're delivered into my basement studio one, two, or three at a time, where they are placed on the stone slab, like the three in front of me right now, and I begin my work by lighting the two oil lamps. The light from these oil lamps doesn't quite reach the edges of the room, or if it does, it is, like I mentioned earlier, absorbed by the thick, heavy velvet. This is important for a reason that I will reveal shortly. Shit. Where are you? I clean the casket. This is various degrees of difficulty, depending on how long the former tenant of the funeral box resided there. There are usually pieces of rotten flesh, puddles of viscera, clumps of hair. I don't know how the bodies are disposed of. They're always gone before the coffins get to me. I utilize a great deal of my custom tools and substances at this point, scrubbing the thing clean. That is step one.
step two is a far more important step. When a body is placed in a coffin, it leaves behind two things. Yes, the corpse rots, falling apart, disintegrating, seeping into the wood and fabrics of the burial container. But another, more problematic thing oozes out of the body and soaks into the materials of the coffin. Essence, or shade, call it a specter, or spirit. It digs its claws into the wood and is unwilling to go peacefully. Trying to put another corpse in a coffin like this will yield terrible results. We've seen it before, my associates and I. The dwelling spirit rips the intruding corpse to shreds. The family of the desecrated corpse then blames the mortician. It's simply not a situation in which the funeral parlor that the burial containers are bound for can make any money on. And if they can't make any money, the whole scheme falls apart. So I light the candles. I read from the book on the lectern. I turn the dials on my ingenious electric machine. The electricity from two of the hoses feeds into the salt circle that nearly spans the entire room. I return to the book and mutter a few more lines from it. The salt circle starts glowing. Then I grab the third hose with its handle and probe on the end and get to work. The salt circle and electricity somehow acts as a lens focusing my gift. Those spirits desperately clinging to their last homes fade in and out of sharp focus. Here is where, if things got a little too bright, I would be blinded. The lens, formed by the salt and the electricity, would focus the light and burn my retinas. I use the electrical probe like a cattle prod, digging it into their ephemeral form. They usually cry out. They wail in something that resembles pain, but I'm not sure they can feel pain to begin with. Here is where I admit, if I was doing what I do to people, I'd say you should lock me up, throw away the key, put me in the electric chair. If I was doing what I was doing to people, I'd call it torture. But they're pests, and I'm just an exterminator. Tonight, it went all wrong. I got these three spirits out of their coffins, but they didn't retreat into the darkness never to be seen again. They smashed my instruments ripped at the velvet, tossed the rugs aside. When I tried to make a run for it, they shut the door and threw me down the stairs. They are here. They have locked me down here with them, trapped me, three of them, and I can see them sometimes, but I can't do anything about it. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both Natural Light and three of them, were written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. 
Special thanks to Candlelight and to Tumbling Down the Stairs. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. fans, this is Mike, one of your troop leaders over at the Horror Scouts podcast. I, with my co-hosts Brian and Nick, want to invite you to check out our show. We post new episodes every Tuesday and alternate between movie reviews and general discussions about horror. So whether we're handing out merit badges for things like writing, directing, and gore, or just talking around the campfire, we'd love for you to join us. Head over to horrorscouts.com for more info and subscribe to us on iTunes by searching Horror Scouts Podcast. You can also find us, along with all the other awesome shows on the Phantom Podcast Network, at downrightcreepy.com. And if you prefer social interaction over spending time with the bodies hidden in your shed, reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter with at horror underscore scouts. So grab your headphones and wrap a bloody bandana around your neck. It's time to sign up and be a horror scout.